Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's no more important story than the life of Jesus. It may seem obvious that his birth is the beginning of that story, but you know that he existed with you since the beginning of time and the endless history of eternity past. We've all heard this story before, God, but we ask you that you would make it afresh to our hearts this evening. Speak to us by your Spirit so that we love Jesus to the point where we're willing, every day, willing to bow before him and to follow his teachings, to follow him. For that's what you've called your children to do, to worship him, to adore Christ the Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, I invite you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. This is the classic story that recounts the human birth of God, of Jesus, who prior to this had forever existed in spirit form. But on this night, about 2,000 years ago, having been sent by his heavenly Father on a mission, in real time, at a real place, in real history, Jesus emptied himself of all glory, glory that's incomprehensible to us. And he entered our world as a humble human being, born of a virgin, a young lady named Mary. Jesus left his heavenly home behind and obeyed the Father's will that he one day die on a cross. That earthly mission, by the way, was an agreement among the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's actually the beginning of the Christmas story. An agreement made since before the foundation of the world, before the creation events of even Genesis, God planned salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 say this, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, that's Christmas in 2 Timothy. Salvation plan before the ages began is manifested by the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Another text that makes this point is Titus 1. It's verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. All right, that's a translation from the original Greek, which literally reads, before times eternal. So the Bible teaches us that this birth was not only not an accident, but it was sovereignly ordained for the purpose of salvation. The Father sent the Son. The Son then purchased by his death, or procured salvation by doing the Father's will as an atonement for our sin, and the Holy Spirit preserves us under that salvation, so that it's guaranteed by God himself. In other words, salvation is a Trinitarian act. All right, so let's get to the story, shall we? Luke 2, beginning at verse 1, the Word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen and Amen. In these 14 verses, we have some real historical figures and places mentioned. In addition to the starring cast member, Christ the Lord, also mentioned for us our Caesar Augustus. He was the supreme emperor of the entire civilized world of the day, the Roman Empire, which stretched from modern Iraq through North Africa and all around the Mediterranean region and westward, even into Belgium and Great Britain. Syria's governor, Quirinius, is mentioned, which also gives credence to an actual historical event. Quirinius, he was the leader who imposed the census on behalf of his boss, Caesar Augustus. Historical records indicate <clears throat> excuse me, that this census was purposed to ultimately impose a property tax on all the people under the rule of Caesar. Now, just south of Syria where the Israel regions of Galilee and Judea, um, where they were, which were overseen by puppet kings who served at the pleasure of the Caesar. Jesus' earthly mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, they fell under the jurisdiction of one of these puppet kings. Now, the text in Luke, which we read, doesn't mention the rulers of Joseph and Mary's region. But Matthew does in chapter 2 of his gospel. King Herod ruled the region of Judea, which... The town of Bethlehem was in, and it was Bethlehem where the husband, Joseph, where he was supposed to register because Joseph came from the lineage of David, and that city, the city of David, was Bethlehem. And so it was there that Joseph had to go to register his family and property, again, so that Caesar could tax him. In addition to Bethlehem, the town of Nazareth is mentioned as well as the region of Galilee where Joseph and Mary had their home and where Jesus grew up as a boy. And so all that background is to show you that the birth of Jesus was long planned by God and long expected by God's people, and that it actually occurred in historical time and space. This story, it's not a fairy tale. All right? Armed with that fact, I want to juxtapose, I want to compare side by side the birth of Jesus and the situation that he was born into. The situation that he was born into with that of the earthly rulers and their kingdoms. 
for it was this message, as we've been seeing in Mark's gospel over the last several weeks, it was the primary message of Jesus that the kingdom of God had arrived by the coming of its king. I think you'd agree with me that if we were putting together a new religion, we wouldn't start it off this way, in obscurity, in poverty, in a backwoods type of village, and then by selecting an inner circle of laborers and despised men who were not scholars or politically plugged in or militarily persuasive, the twelve disciples did not bring with them a Rolodex of who's who. To start our comparison, let's first recognize that Jesus, that he was born a king. Humanly speaking, as a baby, he was a descendant of Israel's greatest monarch, King David. And his kingly reign was prophesied all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Though Jesus wore no crown until he was about 33 years of age. And that was a man-made crown of viney thorns. Very different than the gold and bejeweled crown of Herod. Jesus had no throne or scepter. He had no visible land or citizens to govern. And yet we're told that the baby was declared a king. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In verse 31 in Luke's chapter 1, the angel Gabriel, he's speaking with Mary, informing her that she'll become pregnant. In that news, Gabriel says this, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's kingship language, Edgemont. In those verses, Jesus is said to have a throne, an arraigned people, those being the descendants of Jacob. In other words, those chosen by God for salvation. But none of that is visible on Christmas morning in an animal barn, in a stable. On the other hand, King Herod and Caesar Augustus, they had royal robes. They had thrones denoting power, palaces of splendor, honorary buildings and whole cities named after them, and thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people under their authority. Now, earlier I mentioned that Jesus was born in poverty. Clearly, his parents were not a couple of material means. When I was in college, I worked for a hotel chain. Actually, it was a Holiday Inn, and I can tell you that Even when the hotel was booked, if a VIP came in needing a room, if Tom Cruise, as an example, walked in and said, I want to stay here tonight, but I don't have a reservation, then we would surely accommodate Tom Cruise. Even if we had to kick someone out. But Joseph, he didn't have that reputation or influence. He didn't whip out a couple of hundred bucks and grease the palm of the innkeeper to find an available suite. Mm Mm-mm. Instead, somehow Joseph found some space in a stable. Bethlehem was bursting, it seems, with people pouring in to obey Caesar's decree of registering. And as a result of that humility, Mary underwent labor and gave birth among animals, 
among beasts of burden and livestock. That's quite a different scenario than Caesar Augustus, whose father was also Roman, a Roman Caesar. But between these two kings, who do you think was superior? This baby or the king of, of the known world whose face was on every coin and on every building? We know from Mark 6 and from Matthew 13 that Joseph was a carpenter, which could, by the way, in the Greek, tecton, that could include stonemasonry. But there's no indication that his livelihood was anything more than a sole proprietorship, a simple one-man shop. We know from Matthew 2 that the infant Jesus was visited by wise men or magi from the east. In verse 11, they arrived at the house where Jesus now lived. And so I'm sorry to tell you, but those nativity scenes you see with three wise men standing around in the manger, that's, that's all wrong. By the time the Magi arrived, Jesus wasn't any longer in the stable at Bethlehem. Nevertheless, these men from the east, they brought precious gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh, the most precious of metals and two resins that were used in the ancient world as expensive perfumes and incense and also for medicine as an analgesic, right? A painkiller. So what became of these expensive gifts? Did they make Mary and Joseph rich? Did Jesus have a sort of dowry or a 401k saved up for a rainy day? We don't know. We don't know what they did with these gifts. And we should note that if the scriptures don't tell us, then it's not important for us to know. Nevertheless, Caesar Augustus had a lot more than that. More wealth than he could count. Literally, that's why he had men conduct a census and count it all up for him. In addition to the visible status and the economic differences of these kings, Caesar was the commander of thousands of military men, the best armed troops in the world and the best trained soldiers that may, frankly, have ever existed, even to this day. As a king, he could command legions and chariots and ships to conquer whatever enemy or land that was desirable. On the other hand, Jesus, he had none of these. But what he did have was a heavenly host of angels. That word hosts, it means armies. Jesus was the captain of the Lord's hosts in Joshua 5 before Israel moved into the promised land to conquer Jericho and other cities. And let's have none of this idea that angels are cherub-faced, innocent-looking babies. All right, when an angel shows up on the scene in Scripture, people are terrified. They wouldn't say, be not afraid, unless they were terrifying. Even Gabriel said to Mary, fear not. But this infant king, he will not conquer with a sword of metal but he will wage war against Satan and all that evil stands for by wielding the truths of God, by wielding that spiritual sword. And not only conquering sin, but he'll capture the hearts of those he came to save, not with force, but with love. You know, when the Bible says that God's ways are not our ways, this is a perfect example when a nation wants to beat down an enemy, how do they do it? Armies, guns, bombs, spies, deception, and psychological warfare. Never in the history of man, at least that I know of, has a nation conquered another people by loving them, 
So there's a lesson in this. Uh, there's a lesson in this for us this evening. If you want to win over your enemy, then you should pray for them. That's doing them good. That's loving them. For that's the way God won you over. And that's exactly what he commands his people to do. Matthew 5.44, Jesus says there, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Of course, Herod and Caesar had whatever food and things and care they wanted. They could command servants to lavish anything upon them. But Jesus, he couldn't even speak. He entered this world as a king, but one who was a helpless baby. Jesus, he was 100% reliant on other people for even his most basic of needs. Look, I could go on. I could go on, of course, but I think you get it. The comparison of these kings, whether it be Jesus to Herod or Jesus to Caesar, it may appear on all aspects that Jesus is inferior and doesn't stand a chance against these other kings. But we know that his kingdom will be forever. Again, citing 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But where is this kingdom of the Caesars now? Where is the kingdom of Napoleon? Where is the kingdom of Cyrus? They are no more. But the kingdom of Christ is eternal. And it all started because God promised that it would one day happen. God not only set things in motion, but he sovereignly ensures that it will come to pass. The kingdom of God will squash every other kingdom because Jesus is the king, that's with a capital K, the king of all kings. As God's mouthpiece, the angel Gabriel told Mary that her son would reign on the throne over the souls of all those he died for and that his reign would never end which means that if he's your king, then your citizenship, your life, will never end. Hey, and that's good news. But you have to be like the Magi in Matthew 2.11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Folks, you have to bow your knee to this infant king that we celebrate tonight. And when we do that, we acknowledge his authority and his mission that his kingdom has come. This king will forgive you of all your treason against God for all your sins that otherwise would bar you from the gates of heaven. By worshiping this king, even as a helpless baby in an animal trough, you will dwell in his eternal palace where there are many, many rooms and where all things are exactly as they should be. And there you are forever at peace, because this baby king was destined to fight against the powers of darkness on your behalf. And despite the differences in kingship, wealth, and armies, this infant son of Mary, God's beloved, he won. He won. And what's most amazing is that it was never even close. Jesus, even in this newborn state, he's the king of kings in whom is all authority and to whom every knee shall bow. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son who gave up everything so that we might live, all of his glory, so that you would be glorified. Born to us this evening, a Savior. Indeed, in Jesus, we may display peace on earth and goodwill to men. In his blessed name, amen.